invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark, Mark chapter 13. I'll begin reading at verse 24 to the end of the chapter. That can be found on page 1010 in the Pew Bible. Last Sunday morning, we looked at verses 1 to 23, where Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. He gives signs of the end of the age of the temple and what will take place. Now we come to a most interesting part of Scripture, a very difficult portion of Scripture. Beginning at verse 24, let us now hear the word of the Lord. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. As far as the reading of God's word, let's ask his blessing in a time of prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. But the Spirit of the living God is teaching the church of Jesus Christ. That you would open the hearts of your people. That you would grant faith in Christ. That you would grant sanctification. That you would grant us persevering faith amidst trials of life. That you, O oh Lord, would help us to stay awake, to keep alert, to be watchful. And Lord, as we hear a sermon on this difficult passage of Scripture, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would grant clarity, that you would grant your Spirit's help and guidance in the preaching and teaching of your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what end times position a Christian holds, the Olivet Discourse poses a difficult challenge to every one of those positions or interpretations. In the previous verses, verses 1 to 23, 
Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, which was fulfilled in A.D. 70. We looked at verses 1 to 23 last week and how it truly came to pass when the Romans besieged and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed and defiled the temple at the hands of the Roman Empire, the Roman army, at the leadership of Emperor Titus. But we come to a passage of Scripture where some interpreters believe that this is still referring to what's happened in the first century. That this coming again, this return of the Son of Man, also refers to judgment upon the temple and subsequently Jerusalem. While other interpreters see this passage, Jesus moving on to the coming of the Son of Man at the end of the age, His second coming. Because there are verses here that kind of throw us for a loop. We, we read it, we say, okay, we're following, but then He throws in a verse, a saying that is perplexing. For example, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What is he referring to? Concerning the day or hour, no one knows. Well, what is he referring to? Is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple? Or is he talking about the end of the age? And so this passage of Scripture is, is very challenging. And there are disagreements within the Christian church regarding the things that will take place and what it's referring to especially in verses 24 to 37. But there are two things that are certain. You see, when you come to a difficult passage of Scripture, there are a couple things that we do. First, we compare Scripture with Scripture. We look at the whole of the Bible to, to help interpret a difficult passage of Scripture. But we also look at what is the main thrust of Jesus' teaching here. What does he really and clearly wants us to grasp, to take away? What is clear? Okay, the things that may take place at the end of the age may not be as clear. But how the Christian ought to live in light of tribulation and persecution and trials are clear. For example, have you noticed from last week's passage that was read in this week's passage, how many times we heard, be awake, be watchful, stand guard, don't fall asleep? Isn't that clear enough? So we, not, we need not try to muddy the waters. Because there's another thing that's certain. Not only does he give us the command to be alert, be watchful, we know that it's also certain that he came to bring judgment upon Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 40. But we know also for certain that he will come again to judge the living and the dead in his second coming. So we focus on the things that are certain and be careful how we interpret Jesus' words, because they are challenging. 
I think one of the takeaways here is how then shall we live in light of his coming again? How then shall the disciples and the audience of Jesus receive his word concerning the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem? How then shall they live? Be watchful, be alert, stand guard. How shall the church after AD 70, before the second coming of Christ, live their lives? Be watchful, be alert, stand guard. This, this brings comfort to God's people. And as we'll see in a few moments, encouragement to God's people. Think about this by way of illustration. What have the Ukrainian leaders been asking for? They've been asking for relief. They've been asking for air support. They've been asking for military help. They've been asking for weapons. They've been asking for a lot. They're asking for other nations to, to intercede, to come along and help. They don't know. They don't know what's going to happen in this ugly war that this nation is in and the atrocities that are taking place. Now think about the spiritual war that's taking place. Think about the trials and tribulations that the church of Jesus Christ is enduring. What is Jesus doing here? There is a war. There is a war, a war that took place in AD 70, actually started in AD 66 in the Jewish war. And there's a war that takes place, a spiritual battle. It's not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces and principalities. Things that will take place before the second coming of Christ. But what does Jesus say to us, the church? I got your back. You are mine. I am your help. You can know that I am yours and I will come to rescue and redeem and save. You see the difference? Yes, there is going to be persecution, but take heart. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus has the first and last word. And Jesus will rescue his bride because he loves her and laid down his life for her. We need to put these verses in perspective with the whole of Scripture, especially the imperatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we consider this passage I want to first look at the glory of the Son of Man's coming. Look with me in your Bible at verse 24. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. After the tribulation, is he referring to after the tribulation that he previously spoke of in verses 3 and following? When he talks about the wars and rumors of war, when he talks about false prophets, when he talks about nations rising against nations, when he talks about persecution and famine? 
Sure, that's part of it. In verse 24, he says, But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light. He transitions from the events recorded in verses 1 to 23 and the temple's destruction and Jerusalem's destruction to the events yet to come, verse 24 to 27, which seemingly speak of the coming glory of the Son of Man. And that the coming glory of the Son of Man, His return will be accompanied by three things. Divine power, divine presence, and divine purpose. Divine power, divine presence, and divine purpose. We see the divine power in judgment when He says that after the tribulation the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the suns will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is figurative language used often in the Old Testament Scriptures, and is often used to talk about the coming judgment of the Lord. And we see this, especially in Isaiah's book, in his prophecies. For example, concerning Babylon, listen to what he says concerning the judgment that the Lord will bring upon Babylon in chapter 13, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. And then he also goes on to speak about how the remnants of Israel will be gathered in again by shepherds who love them. So this language of darkness, of not giving light, of stars falling from heaven, speak of God's power in judgment, divine power in judgment. And it seems here that he's referring to the second coming in judgment and in power because of the divine presence when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. There are some interpreters who believe that, no, this passage is still referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Still referring to the first century. That in the destruction of the temple, God's power and judgment was upon Israel because they have forsaken the Messiah. But the important thing here is that we need to remember that divine power and judgment is at work. It's at work. It was at work in AD 70. It's, it's going to be at work in the last day when Jesus comes again. You know, this language of stars, darkness, the natural world, the constellations not giving off its light was also seen on Good Friday. Was it not? What happened on Good Friday? There were earthquakes. There was darkness over the land. Why? Because divine power and judgment was placed upon the Son of God, the Son of Man. Divine power and judgment was placed upon the Son so that His people, Christians, 
may know salvation, may know freedom and forgiveness of sins. To be sure, it can be said that, yes, there was divine power and judgment in Jerusalem and in the temple in the first century, but that is going to be the case in the second coming of Christ when His glory will be on full display for all to see publicly. Again, it seems that Jesus refers to His second coming more than just what was fulfilled in the first, what will be fulfilled in the first century. Because he says, and then they will see the Son of Man. Notice the third person. He speaks of himself in the third person. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will come in the clouds which indicate the presence of God. Clouds symbolizes divine presence. We see this when God led the Israelites in the wilderness in a cloud. And a cloud filled the temple, the sanctuary, with divine presence, with glory. It will be public and every eye will see Him. Every eye, even those who pierced Him, says the Scripture. Jesus is the Son of Man who will return. And it is, it is His title and office that condemns Him before the Sanhedrin. Turn with me to chapter 14, verse 61. Verse 61 and following, this is why I believe that he's referring to the second coming at the end of the age. Verse 61, he was being interrogated by the Sanhedrin, and he remained silent against his accusers. He made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Jesus speaks of himself as the Son of Man who will be seated in all glory, power, and majesty, and he will come again in the clouds of glory. And he will come back with a divine purpose. A divine purpose. You see that in verse 27. The glory of the Son of Man will come back, will return with divine purpose. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. He will bring full redemption. He will gather to Himself God's elect, God's sheep, from every tribe, tongue, and nation bought by His precious blood. day of rejoicing that will be when he gathers his elect from every tribe and every nation. 
Some interpreters, again, see this as referring to the first century. They say angels. Angels can also mean messengers. That God is sending his messengers out, the apostles and prophets, to preach the gospel and gather the elect, the sheep, through the preaching of the word. However, it seems, once again, that these elect refer to Jesus, the Son of Man, who purchased these elect ones, the Christians, who solely trust in Jesus' perfect work. These elect ones are Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who repent of their sins and believe on Him to be saved and will be gathered in the last day. Jesus says at chapter 8, verse 38 of Mark, chapter 8, verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Because of these parallel passages, these scriptures, I believe scriptures interpreting it for ourselves here, it seems that Jesus is certainly referring to his glory in his second coming, his divine presence and purpose. And again, friends, the objective of eschatology or the doctrine of last things is not speculation or to speculate when this will happen, when he will come back again, not to have prophecy conferences to find out what date he will come back. There is no doubt that great conflict and tribulation will occur. There will be persecution, war, and famine. But the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us how to respond in such conflict and tribulation. How to respond as a Christian pilgrim on this side of glory. Paul says, For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord always. And then what he says, he says this, Therefore, encourage one another with these things, with these words. This is the purpose of eschatology or the end of the, the end times. The doctrine of end times or the last things. To encourage one another, to spur one another on, to persevere and press on. Yes, his glory is coming. Christian, look to the glory that is about to come in the person of Jesus Christ. For now he is seated at the right hand of God, but he will come again. Don't give up. Don't give up. Then we come to verse 28, and it seems to transition back to the temple's destruction. The nearness of the temple's destruction. It's like he's, he's mixing together what's going to happen in A.D. 70 in the, the first century and what is to come at the end of the age. He, so learn from the fig tree. Jesus says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation 
will not pass away until all these things take place. So learn from the fig tree that it's coming near. When you see the leaves, that is when you see the signs of the times, that the things that he spoke of will come to pass soon. He is near. It is near. To be sure, the return of the Son of Man is near. And we read this, we learn about it in the New Testament Scriptures, in the letters particularly, when the Apostle encourages us and warns us of the Lord being at hand. The Lord is at hand. Stay awake. And the signs of the end times are present throughout the time of tribulation until His coming. However, Jesus says, and here's the difficult part of it, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now we seem to run into a difficulty. Jesus seems to foretell that even His return or coming is within the lifetime of His audience. His audience being this generation. Now, depending on the context, the word generation can mean a few things. Generation can mean a whole multitude of men living at the same time. It can also mean an age or a time period that has a long time period in mind. For example, this wicked generation is a long period of time. Or indeed, we live in this present evil age, this wicked generation. But it seems from the passage that Jesus is referring to the generation of Christians in the first century. That is the generation of his immediate audience, the disciples. It seems that because the Lord has not returned a second time, what he said previously in verses 24 to 27, that he's referring to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. When he says, so as when you see these things taking place, the signs of the end of the time of the temple, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, and there's no need for a temple. He is the cornerstone of the temple, and we are the living stones, the precious stones of the temple. And you see what he's saying, learn from the fig tree, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is near at the very gate, and his word is true and will not fail. The temple's destruction is near. Josephus wrote, the church historian of that day, the church, uh, Jewish church historian wrote, the city was undeserving of these great misfortunes except that she produced a generation such as that had, which caused her overthrow. Josephus, even knowing that his own people were the cause of their destruction, nearness of the temple's destruction and the destruction of Jer Jerusalem is near to his present audience. But Jesus, again, seems to mix both what happens in the first century with what happens in the end of the age. Because even in Matthew's Gospel, the disciples ask him, what will happen? When will these things place, take place? When will the things of the first century when, these, when the temple buildings will be destroyed and what will happen at the end of the age. 
When will the temple be destroyed and when will the end of the age occur and the kingdom be ushered in? I believe then Jesus goes on to talk about the unknown hour of his return. Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. What do you do with that? Nor the Son. Again, another very difficult verse. Many critical interpreters or critical scholars, liberal scholars, say, you see, Jesus is ignorant. He's not God. He doesn't know. He doesn't even know when he's going to return, when the parousia is going to be, when his coming is going to be. How can he be true God if he doesn't know when he is coming again? For he doesn't have omniscience, so they argue. He's not all-knowing. This verse is a cause for many to deny the Gospels and deny Jesus altogether as being truly God. For no one knows the hour or the day when he will come except the Father. We need to understand that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Jesus had a true human nature and a true divine nature. A true human nature and a true divine nature. And Jesus revealed to his disciples what the Father revealed to him. And that's an important point to make. Jesus told his disciples over and over, I deliver to you what has been delivered to me from my Father. It has not been delivered to the the Son from the Father when he shall come again. Jesus suffered the infirmities of the human flesh, the limitations of the human nature, and yet fully and truly divine. Friends, this is mystery. This is mystery. The Son of Man will come again. He does promise, it has been revealed to Him, that He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. But the hour or day is unknown to the people of God. And the parable of the master of the house returning helps answer that question. Look with me in your Bible, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say, I say to, I say to all. You see how the audience is now extended to all? So I say to all, stay awake. Christian, stay awake. You do not know the hour or time or day. But the master of the house is going to come. Don't be consumed at the hour or day. Be consumed with faith in Christ, faith in His coming, hope, a sure and certain hope that He is coming. Will He find you asleep? Christian, 
friend, will he find you asleep when he comes? If the Lord should remove the roof from this sanctuary, will he find you spiritually asleep at the wheel? Will he find faith when he returns? What are you hanging your hope on? What are you hanging your peace on? We're going through the fruit of the Spirit in the evening service. What are you hanging your love on? Your joy, your peace, your patience. What are you laying your faith on? Is it on those things that can be seen or the things that are not seen? Waiting for us in the heavenly places. Waiting for us at Christ's return. Jesus uses three words here as an exhortation to each Christian to take heed, to be alert, to be watchful. Don't be asleep at the spiritual wheel because the Lord can come. He comes like a thief in the night. Meanwhile, trust in the Lord. Wait patiently for His return in the tribulation times. And yes, we are in tribulation. Don't busy yourself with speculation and signs and wonders. Busy yourself with being watchful. Busy yourself with the things of God and His Word. Busy yourself with godliness and righteousness and holiness through faith in Jesus. Busy yourself with worship. Busy yourself with praise. Busy yourself with prayer. Busy yourself with the worship of God with God's people. That's why the author of Hebrews says, do not neglect the gathering of the saints. You know why? Because the days are evil and the devil seeks to snatch and to destroy and to plunder. And Jesus says elsewhere that he even tries to make the elect go astray. Don't fall asleep, Christian. And with all the multimedia, social media things going on, and I'm guilty of this too, all these things going on, we become so pessimistic. We become so critical. Yes, there are a lot of things to be critical of in this sinful, wicked generation. There are a lot of things we need to be preaching against and speaking against. But we speak as those who have no hope sometimes. John Piper was asked, why is it you think, Dr. Piper, that unbelievers don't ask the church for a reason that is a hope that is within them? You know what he said? It's because we live with the same hope that they live with so often. And that's true. He's spot on. Again, we Speak in our hearts this hope that we have in Christ, but we live like practical atheists. We live like practical relativists. We live like practical unbelievers. Practically, that's how we live so often. Jesus is teaching his church through this foretelling of the destruction of the temple and this teaching of the end of the age, not to stir up speculation of when he's coming, but rather to encourage you, to give you hope, 
and to remind you that He is coming again. Fix the eyes of your faith upon Him. Not on the things that are transient. Not on the things that are going to fade away and die and perish. Paul says, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Every new day is a day when the day draws closer of His coming. The the Lord's return. He says to the Philippians, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. James says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Nothing about speculation, nothing about end times theology other than encourage one another that he is coming again. How it works out, that's his business. But we confess that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Yes and amen. Do you believe that, Christian? That he will come again and make all things right. Encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. Bless one another. Exhort one another. Because His presence will be known to all and every knee will bow and tongue confess that He is Lord. Even those who hate Him will bend the knee to King Jesus before they are cast into utter darkness. Because every person will acknowledge His kingship and lordship. But those who believe in Him as Savior will know redemption full and free. Are you keeping watch? Are you alert? Keep your faith fixed on Him. And may your heart not grow cold in the hour of trial. That's Jesus' warning to His people. Matthew chapter 24. Many hearts, even among the people of God, will grow cold. Lord God, may that not be said of me. May my heart be softened by your grace and filled with your love. Love for you and love for my neighbor and point to you, O Jesus. Point to you and share with my neighbor. Repent and believe in the gospel because he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I want to close with Revelation 22. Please turn with me in your Bible. Revelation chapter 22. Beginning at verse 6. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and your brothers the prophets 
and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Those who receive Christ by faith have washed their robes with the blood of Jesus and have entered that most holy place found in Him. And as Apostle John says, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we give you praise and adoration for the gospel promise. You have granted us faith and hope. You have granted to us the promises of your holy word. You have granted us faith by the power of your spirit and the working of the word in our hearts to believe this message. We pray that you would grant us faith to persevere in our trials and that you would increase our hope in you in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation. Oh Lord God, every generation is fallen. Every generation is wicked because they have strayed from your holy word. But thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our sins and grants new life and has washed us by his precious blood so that we are no longer defiled in your presence, but come holy and blameless. And we await and long for that day of his return, the day when there will be no more sorrow or sadness or weeping, but there will be joy everlasting. And there will no longer be faith nor hope, for they will become sight. And all that remains will be love, and we will dwell in the love of God forever. The love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one eternal God, forever and ever, and who reigns forever and ever.